Dr Linda Pfeiffer was a semi-finalist for this year's Queensland Community Awards for her work with STEM education. And on November 23rd of this year, she will be featured on Wikipedia. Firstly, how does one get themselves onto Wikipedia? And can you actually just edit whatever you want? Good question, Priscilla. So I was approached as part of um, the Zonto Club of Gladstone, have a wiki project featuring four local women in Gladstone to be on Wikipedia. So I was approached and apparently it is all legitimate. There are researchers that uh, check on all the information. I did try to slip in as um, quite a bit more height and a bit less weight, but it all gets uh, checked. Oh, awesome. That was good to know. And I hear that you, your children were quite amused by this. Oh, yes, they were. I I often, uh, I'm always telling my children to check everything they read online. It's not always legitimate and be careful of things like Wikipedia. So when I told them, they just had a go at me. But yeah, as I said, I just said to them, oh, that's okay. I can just make up anything I want and it'll be on there. But that isn't the case. It will all be checked. It'll all be checked. Very good. So you're a senior lecturer here and campus coordinator for education in Gladstone, as well as the STEM lead at CQ Uni. What role do you find most rewarding? Oh, I think most rewarding of those three is the STEM lead, um, leading the project that I have at STEM Central in Gladstone. I think partly because my whole life has been about science education, even before I was working and before I was working at Seek University. So to have a room that was my vision and was built um, totally with me and a designer, you know, you can't get much better than that. What is it exactly? What, try and visualise it for our for our listeners. Okay, so um, I have heard it referred to as a glorified classroom uh, by colleagues, but they obviously haven't been in there yet. It, it is uh, a double room with um, coloured zones mapped out. So essentially each zone has a table and a computer screen, but it's really brightly coloured. We also have a booth, we have a dark room, and we have a coding lab, which is a bit like a giant room we can fly drones, but you can... It has horizontal gapped walls so you can see through and there's also glass windows between some of the zones so it's a bit like a classroom in the fact that you can sort of almost see every uh, zone from the middle except the booth you can't quite see around the corner Um, but yeah it's amazing and it's colourful and everyone who walks in just goes wow and I think yay (laughs) it's achieved what it was intended to achieve. How did it first come about? So uh, I started off um, running this ConocoPhillips Science Experience at Gladstone Marina. So Owen, as the AVC, was approached to run this event. Now, the ConocoPhillips Science Experience is run across Australia with all different universities. And the idea is year nine and 10 students come to a university campus for three or four days and immerse themselves in hands-on science that they don't normally get at school. So ConocoPhillips uh, operate in Gladstone, Australia Pacific LNG, and they invest a lot of money in sending Gladstone students to Brisbane, to the Brisbane universities, and they thought, this is a bit ridiculous. We have a university in our town. Uh, Why don't we do it locally? So we did it. um, We've done it for five years now, and we've expanded to other campuses, but it was ConocoPhillips Science Experience and the successes of that event that prompted the further relationship to, to invest in the room. Excellent. Just for our listeners who don't know what STEM actually means, 
Can you spell it out? I can literally spell it out. (laughs) So it's science, technology, engineering and mathematics. And it is about an integration of those disciplines and using an integrated approach to solving real world problems. So we do get the um, odd argument about why is the A not there for arts to be STEAM. And I have had a a colleague and I talk about this and a local artist who I work with. And she said, oh, you need the A to be creative. And I told her science and scientific discoveries have come about from creativity. Teaching science is creative. I'm not saying you shouldn't have arts involved. It's, it is involved, so is language. Everything's involved in creating, you know, a solution to a problem. Um, but, yeah, the, it's, the STEM is the science, technology, engineering and mathematics. Um, you talk about um, being problem-solving and real-world experiences. Can you just tell us some of those sort of things that you might get involved in? Okay, so um, we're doing a research project with some teachers um, at the moment to look at modelling inquiry approaches in the classroom. So one one of the um, session workshops that we did, we had the teachers come, we talked about what they would be doing in their classroom the following term, and they talked about um, designing shelters, uh, you know, and to give it a regional context, we said, okay, if you're going to do this with your kids in the classroom and they're going to design a shelter and then build it, how could they test uh, the effectiveness of the shelter? So we brainstormed and they said, well, you know, things that we have in central Queensland are floods, fires and cyclones. So we looked at testing um, those sort of three scenarios. But what we do in the workshop is the teachers act as the students. So we don't just come up with an idea and a design of a shelter. You actually have to physically build it and then you have to test it and then redesign it. So they um, lit the shelters on fire because that was to test the bushfire. So we had to go outside because I hadn't done a risk assessment. No, I had to go outside and um, light them on fire. And I explained to them at the end of the day, that true inquiry approaches came from what we brainstormed on the day and what they came up with. So when I woke up that morning, I didn't know we were going to be lighting shelters on fire. It sort of evolved. Um, obviously, in a classroom situation, you can't, you know, there's limits with risks and safety of what you can do, but you can guide the children, you know, to use their inquiry approaches to come up with solutions to different to different problems. So this way of teaching science, maths, engineering, um, how... How do children react to it? How, how do oh, the, yeah. the children love it? It's and adults as well. Nobody likes to learn. Oh, and postgrad and undergraduates, university students. Nobody really likes to learn by reading or just listening to a lecture. You know, hands-on is the way to learn. It's you know, there's so much research that shows that, and a lot of people are visual learners as well as as doing. So I think having a real-world context you can relate to and having it hands-on and exciting. It just makes everyone love the learning and, you know, it's not a chore, you know, to be learning in that way. So how come some students find science boring in the classroom? So many students find science boring. Um, I I would think at the moment the chronic teacher shortage that we have, particularly in science and maths teaching, contributes to that. So what we have is over 50% of high school science, junior science teachers are teaching out of field. So you're teaching a subject. Oh, well, over the years, I think um, people that were good at science and maths went into scientific careers and um, and that sort of or engineering careers. They didn't come back to teaching. Teaching's not, not attractive to people um, over time, mainly because of the conditions. You know, it's crowded classroom, crowded curriculum, a lot of pressures with the different, um, you know, types of challenges you're faced with uh, children these days. 
So, yeah, we just have a chronic teacher shortage. I know in Gladstone it's very chronic. You know, mm-hmm. my child's at, one's at high school, one's at primary school, and they have, have had up to seven lessons a day. They only have four in one day of um, extra... Uh, I can't remember what they call it, where there's minimal supervision, where they com- combine classes because okay. they literally mm-hmm. cannot get casuals. So, yeah. It's oh, amazing, isn't it? Yeah. It's very frightening, actually. Mm. And, yeah, we need to make sure that we um, continue investing in the teaching profession because they're responsible for all other professions. So, you know, we won't be going to space, we won't be exploring, we won't be genetically modifying foods, we won't be doing all this research in the future if we don't have good teachers. So we need to invest in teachers so that they can pass that on to the students. Mm. So um, good teachers make good science students? Yeah, that's that's exactly Possibly. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, so we're having teachers that are in the workplace teaching out of their comfort zones, basically. So part of your role, I guess, is to actually immerse them into some science themselves, and then so they can take it back. That's correct. And we also have a gap between industry and um, teachers as well across the board, not just in STEM, but particularly in STEM areas. So I'm one of those teachers that went from high school to year 12. I did my straight into a teaching degree and I went straight into a classroom. So I've never worked in industry. I've never had a job outside education. Um, My husband, fortunately, is not a teacher, so I do get a bit of a taste of of the other side. Um, But teachers are responsible for careers of the future. Yet how can they even know the skills involved if they don't even know what it's like to be an engineer or to be a scientist or to do any other career? So I try to match them with the industry as well and come up with experiences that they can relate that what they have to teach in the Australian curriculum to a real-world situation. Hmm. Now, you're an actual science teacher yourself. Can you take us back into your decision to actually go into education? Um, so originally, well, my father was a first in family at university. He was a surveyor. So I always had the maths and science sort of inquiry at home and asking how things work and things like that. But my mother's side of the family are made of artists and art teachers. And I loved art up to year 10. Um, and I wanted to be an art teacher. When I got to year 11, subject choices, art and physics were on the same line, which I still are at one of the schools I was talking to a student the other day. So it's assumed that if you're good at art or you're good, you're not going to be good at physics and vice versa. It's very strange. Um, So with my father's background, it convinced me to take physics. So I thought that'd be fine. But when I got to year 12, I couldn't apply to be an art teacher because I didn't do art as a prereq. In year 11 and 12, I wasn't given that advice. Um, by then, I really loved science. I had a really young female chemistry teacher and I went on to teach chemistry. But that was 20-odd, bit over 20 years ago. And only 12 of us graduated from Newcastle Uni with a Bachelor of Education Science. And less than half of us took chemistry as a major. The others, most of them took biology. So, I mean, that was that long ago. So, you know, the shortage is very chronic. So what's changed in the classrooms, do you think, from then until now? Um, lo- lots of things. I, I did some relief teaching actually a few, oh, probably seven years ago now, and I walked into the classroom and the 
um, deputy principal handed me a USB stick and I said, oh, what's that? She goes, that's the maths lesson. I was like, okay, so what are they doing in maths? And they were doing, um, I think it was decimal points or dividing by fractions, dividing by 10. So I did, I put it in and it was a PowerPoint presentation, which is fine. I used to use overheads, but it just went to the next slide all the time. And I thought, well, what do you do if the children don't understand? So I got the kids up and what trying to explain it in different ways and they're up at the whiteboard and they're you know doing numbers and they said to me at the end we never get allowed to get out of our chairs and I thought wow. behavior management wise yes it is easy to yep. put something on the board and to have kids sit in a chair all day um, yeah, there's no doubt about that mm-hmm. but if you can engage them yes it gets noisy yes I'll move around the room but it, they'll learn more and it's much more rewarding and as a teacher it's so much easier I've had teachers on my project walk around mm-hmm. and say I don't do anything. I said, that's right, because you've set it up properly and these children are used to it. If you just do it now and then, of course, they'll go crazy. Cause, oh, we're out of our chairs. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's, it really involves a lot of mm-hmm. preparation time. But in the end, if you can do it well, and I've seen some great teachers, you know, do collaborative learning really well where you don't even know they're in the room. The kids are just busy doing different things in different corners. Um, yeah, then I think mm-hmm. that's the that's the I key. know, having boys, you know... I tell you, I mean, if you wanted to keep them still in the chair, they wouldn't learn a thing. <laughs> no, and it's true. It's boys and specifically and um, even myself, mm. I would get bored, yeah. you know, and I, I was bored teaching year nine science when I was back teaching. You know, I'd be walking around the room, they're copying notes off a board and I think, this is so boring. Yeah. Like, I'm bored. What time is it? Looking at my mm. watch and I thought, this is there's got to be something better here than, mm. than to be teaching this way. And as I said, if you, if you don't know your content – how can you do hands-on, you know, experiments or things like that? Plus, you have to prepare beforehand, which most teachers buy the materials themselves. And if you, who has the time to practice every single experiment? You know, it's just not practical. Um, so, I think it's just a more investment in in time for teachers. Just talking about that, have you had any light bulb moments where you've seen it in the children's eyes that hey? this is working, there's something, you know, valuable in what we're doing here? Uh, I do see it a lot, actually. <laughs> I see it more now than I'm at the university, I yeah. think, because I have, um, you know, the experience to be able to run the, you know, the STEM room in that sort of way. Uh, at the moment, I have a local school that has their own bus and they two classes come every week. That's their double lesson. They come to the STEM room and they, they're they immersed in, in the learning. I did a... Um, a PD with the teachers first. So it's really great because I don't have to be in there, but I do come in because I can't help myself. I'm always in the room instead of at my desk with <laughs> my <lovely>. jobs. <laughs> Sorry, Bill. Um, um, yeah, so I, I do see it a lot, um, but I also see it with teachers and I see it with seniors. Um, we, we do a lot of community engagement and, you know, you have people saying, oh, school wasn't like this, you know, it wasn't like this when I was at school. Um, yeah, so mm. I can't think of any particular. Yep. I, yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, so if you weren't teaching science, you could have been an artist or an uh, art teacher? Yeah, probably. <laughs> I I haven't drawn. I used to draw. I haven't drawn for a long time, but I, I, I am quite creative. I, I write poems. All of my speeches are always rhyming and I can do it fairly quickly. But, um, yeah, I think I would have – I think I still would have ended up somehow into science. Um, I know, like, our AVC at Emerald, Anita Milroy, so she's, you know, a science – 
I probably get it wrong, but you know, she's got a science degree and she's done a PhD and she's an artist as well. And I think the art and science meld quite well together. Um, yeah, so I think Do I you probably think that's still helped in in your creativity in in um, actually. I think oh, with... definitely coming up with creative ideas of how to teach a scientific concept. You know, or being creative in teaching of any discipline. You know, is a skill that you you really need to have to be creative. Just going back now, just where where did you grow up? Oh, I grew up in Dubbo in New South Wales, so a regional location. Um, so I had a, um, I have an older sister and a younger brother, and live, I'm one of those people that you know parents weren't divorced, brother and sister, same house my whole life, same school my whole life. Um, so I was kind of sheltered. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to Newcastle University, so it wasn't very far away, but I used to drive home every weekend in the first year because I was so homesick. Um, but eventually my father said, you got to stop coming home because you, you won't make a life there, which at the time I thought he was being cruel. But he was right and, and I really made my life at Newcastle. I really loved um, I loved teaching there. We had great lecturers. We went to a school every week. We had school kids coming to the uni all the time because I was only 18 and I was um, teaching high school. So it was tricky, um, but they gave us so many opportunities it was a really good actually, program. Actually, I, I actually wonder about that. Actually, going out of once you've finished uni and you go straight into a high school classroom, you're not that much older than well, the kids you're teaching. It's a funny story. My husband is five years younger than me. Um, so when I was teaching and we went to 21st um, when he was 21 and I was 26, a lot of his friends' girlfriends were in year 11 and 12. So they're like, oh, hi, miss. And I'm thinking, oh, this oh, is... Wow. <laughs> well, it's even worse. We calculated when I did my first year prac when I was 18 at Dubbo High, Matt would have been there as a 13-year-old. <laughs> I didn't teach him, I've checked. No ethics, no problems happened there. But it's just a really funny story because he tells my kids, I'm like, no, I didn't teach your dad in year eight. Like, please stop telling people. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was difficult. And in a small town, and Gladstone's the same, in a small country town, you know, people you know were people. underage drinking, you just left. You just did not put yourself in a situation. Uh, I did have one funny story where I'd been teaching a few years and I went to the canteen, like in my free period, and the parent abused me and I said, I'm actually a teacher. She thought I was a student. And yeah, I'll so take that, that home. Quite, <laughs> yeah, I'll just do that now. Yeah, no one asked me for ID now. <laughs> yeah, so that was funny. Oh, that's awesome. Now, you're involved in sport as well as a kid? Oh, yes. I played hockey. Um, Mm -hmm. I took it back up when I was 40. So five years ago, I took it back up again um, because my father started playing when he was 40. Um, he had oh, a heart he attack. Yeah, he started attack. when he was yeah, 40, he he was oh. 40 he used to coach us, but he had a heart attack when he was 70 and he had open heart surgery and they said they only did it because he was fit. Um, so I thought I'll better take hockey back up. But now he represents Australia in the over 75 veterans. So he was in Canada this year. That's phenomenal. Yeah, Scotland last year. So yeah, he's still running around. Yep. Yeah. And do you find that you've sort of rekindled the love of the sport? Uh Yes, I'm not as fit as uh, I used to be. In the first game, the kids thought I was having a heart attack. I came off and they said, you spend the first 10 minutes leaning over your stick trying to breathe. <laughs> I said, I was just, uh, that was the first game of the season. So it was it was tough. Yeah. But it, it's a great way to exercise because you're doing aerobic exercise and you're just enjoying a sport. And I played with a lot of other older 
you know, mums who have come back. So we're just having fun, not worrying about training, you know, yeah. just enjoying the social side. So. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, it's really good. And how, how, how old are your kids? So my son Luke's almost 14 okay. and my daughter Casey's 12. Oh, lovely. So, yeah, they're both the same. So they're taller than me. Both in high school now? Uh, yeah, Casey will be next year in and do you think there's a love of science coming through them? Well, my daughter won the Tech Girls um, and went over to Silicon Valley for designing wow. an app. She also was in the top 1% of the state for the maths in the maths comp. I, I'll and take that so I think yes. yes for her. My son, though, they're very different. Um, my son, he did the computation algorithm thinking um, test in year eight and got the top score, perfect score. So the wow. first time in 11 years someone at Tandem Stands High has had that. So he was yeah first yeah. in Australia for that. So I think they have it, but they're a bit lazy. <laughs> so we'll see, we'll see how far <laughs> that gets them. Now, um, one of your biggest accomplishments um, has been achieving your Doctor of Science and you did it all with raising kids and all sorts in that oh, time. Can you tell us about that period yeah, in your life? Yeah, I was stupidly thought that when I stopped work to have children, I'd have heaps of time on my hands. I was one of those naive people that thought, what do you do all day? <laughs> like, a baby just sleeps. Um, right. Yeah, no, yeah, which they don't. I had a boy first, so it was mm, even harder. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I started my doctorate just before I finished work. So I got married. Um, yeah, then we had our first child, Luke, in Dubbo. And then we moved to Darwin because my husband's a mad fisherman and he wanted to go on this fishing trip and spend thousands of dollars. And I said, we could move there for that. So we said, okay, let's move there. So we did, we intended to go for a year and come back to Dubbo and raise our kids and live there like the rest of our families who are still there. But we loved it so much that we stayed a year that we decided we'd try Queensland. So yeah, so while I studied, we moved into state three times, had two children, got married, Matt actually had Hodgkin's lymphoma, so we had um, a year of chemo in there. He's wow. all right now. But basically got to the point where my supervisor said, your data's getting too old, you need to do something. And Matt as well said, you need to <laughs> finish this. Um, and I, at the time I thought, why am I even doing this? I'm never going to use it. You know, I was teaching. Teachers don't hardly even have a master's, let alone a doctorate. Um, but, yeah, Matt just pushed me to, I thought, well, you know, I've been through a lot. I really need to finish it. So, yeah, he really supported me through that time. So nine years later, walked across the stage in Western Australia with my parents and my sister and Matt there. So, yeah, Fantastic. it was a very proud moment and I have learned a lot from it. Uh, looking back at the yeah. time, it just seemed to be a chore, a thesis that I carried in the back of the car every time we went on holidays and just in case I got time to read it. Yep. But looking back, it, it was the best thing I ever did was continuing to study. When did you come to CQ Uni then? Uh, seven years ago, 2012. So when Casey turned five. So I stopped work t till they were both, yeah, well, Luke was seven and Casey was five. So I intended to stop work until they both started school. Um, and then instead of going um, back to teaching, I I said to my husband, I want to work at, actually kept driving past the marina and said, I'm going to work there one day. And uh, yeah, it was hard the first few times. I kept, you know, ringing and harassing Helen Huntley at the time and she was the dean um, and a few different things. But I actually applied for an external job in learning and teaching at Rockhampton campus. I had an interview and that was all successful, but I said I, I wouldn't move. So they said, that's fine. So yeah, I started in learning and teaching with um, Julie Fleming and 
a few months later, they had a restructure and my tiny part-time job disappeared. But the next day, someone offered me a research assistant job. And then I picked up steps because I could teach chemistry. Then I picked up science on the campus. And yeah, then I got permanency. So yeah. How things work out. It's bizarre. And I think Sydney Uni is very glad <laughs> that uh, you've come our yeah. way. <laughs> um, you've also written a couple of books this year. Oh, yes. Oh, actually, one chapter's due tomorrow, Friday. <laughs> Uh, it's been, it's been uh, I shouldn't, I don't know that I should have said yes, but I'm one of those people that sees the shiny ball and can't say no. Yep. And I think that's not a good thing um, necessarily. But yeah, working on two books. So one is a research collection and there's three editors and I'm one of the editors. And I wrote a chapter in that um, collection and the chapter is about the Australia-Pacific LNG STEM Central relationship and how that came about over seven years. So it's quite. I'm really happy with how that chapter's come out. And the second book is a, it's not a research book, but it's a handbook for teachers. Uh, it's a toolkit for teaching STEM into the primary curriculum. And there's a heap of authors from different universities. So we have, um, we're looking at a project, a garden project through the science lens, then through the technology lens, then through well, design technology and maths, so the four different curriculums. And then the second part of the book is all different project ideas based around the Australian curriculum from all in primary school. And there's some really creative creative ideas mm. in there. So, yeah. Fantastic. And yeah, both be 2020 publications. Fabulous. Um, before we go... Have you any advice for young STEM teachers? Um, I think I have lots of advice, but I think um, don't do it alone. I, I think you need to have partners, um, not necessarily industry or university, but you need people on board to help you. You're not a science expert, and I'm not a science expert. I'm a science educator. Um, I really think you need partnerships, and that involves taking time. It, it takes time to build partnerships, have a coffee, stop what you're doing, talk to people. I'm always talking to people um, and you'll see what will evolve from that. So I think for a young STEM teacher coming out, that would be my advice is to listen to other people, talk to other people and, and utilise other people because you're not alone and you shouldn't be doing it alone. Just one more thing. You seem to be very busy. Do you ever get time for yourself? Oh. And what do you do? Have you got any hobbies that you do? Hobby? Well, no, we have we have a few boats and uh, we have a boat that we get, sleep on in Catamaran. So usually I take my laptop. <laughs> um, so no, but I do. I, I've just got back into water skiing. So oh. yeah, it took me four goes to get up. Wow. But anyway, I'll get back into it. So yep. yeah, we've just got the kids into water skiing. So going out in the boat and going to the beach and just not thinking about, well, actually, I do think about work. I think that's how it helps me because I actually enjoy it. You know, I just love what I do, so I'm always thinking about it. Um, and it's hard to explain to my husband, who's a tradie. So, you know, he's never really understood when how I'm never finished. Um, but yeah, it's never finished. It just goes on forever, and it and I love it. Well, thank you very much, Linda, for being on the Grapevine today. It's been a privilege. Thank you so much. Like this podcast? Don't forget to rate, review and share with your friends.